see how Titus relates to Easter, if any. And we are in Titus chapter 2, so just find your Bible and turn there. And there is a Bible on your table if you don't have a Bible. And uh, just start at the end of the Bible, Revelation, and start going toward the front, and you'll eventually run into Titus. Okay, we're in Titus chapter 2. Now today, today's passage, and we're going to cover verses 11 through 15, we're going to complete chapter 2, uh, has a very famous verse in it. And you can see it in verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a verse that is usually quoted uh, to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. Looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it looks here as if Jesus is called God. When I was a cult buster, that was in another life, and I had to uh, argue against the cults, I would often use this verse to prove that Jesus was divine. But as I've studied the book, I don't think that was the Apostle Paul's intent for writing that verse. It can be used for that, but that was not what the Apostle Paul was trying to get across. If you really want to know what he meant by that verse, guess what you would have to do? You would want to read the verse in its context, right? In its, what we call its immediate context in the text, and also in its historical context. What would, have, what would this have meant? to a person in the first century who heard this verse being read. So we need to know the context of this verse and the passage that we're studying. Now last week we said that the Apostle Paul instructed Titus to speak to five different groups of people. Do you remember that? There was the old men, the old women, the young women, the who I say, young men, and eventually the slaves. And each one of those were to be told to live a certain way. Live in accordance with the sound gospel, uh, a healthy gospel. There's a false gospel that's preached, which simply says something like this. Trust Christ as your Savior, and then do whatever you want. And Paul says, no, that's not how you're supposed to live. Tell these people they need to live soberly, they need to live godly. Remember all that from last week? And there was a group of people who opposed the sound gospel. These were a group of Jewish believers who were trying to get the Gentile believers to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And uh, Paul says to... Uh, to Titus, he said, you need to confront these people. They need to be stopped. Their teaching needs to be stopped. Okay? So, he says, make sure that people who are Christians live a wholesome life, a behavior that is a testimony to the outside world. Otherwise, if people see that you proclaim Christ, but you don't live Christ, that will lead them to blaspheme God. You remember when we talked about that last week? Don't give them a cause to blaspheme God. And people blaspheme God. I don't believe all that Jesus stuff because what they see is hypocrisy in the church. 
It all falls back on our shoulders because we're not living Christ, we're just professing Christ. So, that's what he says, that we are to be a testimony by our behavior to the outside world. So now we're going to pick up in verse 11. For, the scripture says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Okay? For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, what I want you to notice is the word for, right in the beginning of verse 11. You see the word for? That connects it to the previous passage. <laughs> he says that we're supposed to live a godly life so that others will not blaspheme God, but they will see God's glory. And then he says, and here's the reason, because for the grace of God that appears that, that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, that's the full sentence. We are to live a certain way, and here's the reason why we're to live a certain way. Now, I'm going to look at this sentence. I'm going to break it apart a little bit. I want you to notice the subject of that sentence. The subject is the word grace. You see that? The subject is grace. It's God's grace. It speaks of his benevolence toward us. Okay, that's the subject. Look at the verb. The grace of God has appeared. The verb is has appeared. That's the verb. Okay? It has appeared. That means it has been revealed. God's grace has been revealed. It's been unfolded. It's the word epiphany. There's been an, a, an unveiling of God's grace. Okay? So that's the verb. Okay? To whom has this grace been revealed? What does it say at the end of verse 11? To all men. Now what does that mean? To all men without exception? Or all men without distinction? And there's a difference. Whenever you see the word all, you have to say, does that mean all without exception? What does all without exception mean? It means, had, did God's grace appear back 2,000 years ago to the Native Americans? Uh... Paul didn't know there were Native Americans, so he's probably not talking about that. So you have to just think a little bit like a first century. Does it mean that God's grace has appeared to everybody that lives in the Roman Empire, which at that time was the known world? That would be without exception. Or does he mean that God's grace has appeared to all people on the island of Crete? Because that's what he's dealing with, right? The island of Crete. So we, you have to ask that question. And how you ask that question could possibly affect the way you interpret the text. See, when, you, when I teach students how to interpret a text, I'm teaching them this all the time. Every day I say these same things. And at the end of the semester, I hope that they've got it. And usually about one out of ten gets it. Okay. It's about the same average as in this class. <laughs> you're better. In fact, I would say you're 11%. You're better than my student at the college. Or does it mean has appeared, God's grace has appeared to all men without distinction? Does it mean it's not only for males, it's also for females. God's grace has appeared to slaves and free people. God's grace has appeared to the rich and the poor. It's appeared to Jews and to Gentiles. Is it without exception or is it without distinction? And maybe it means both. Uh, maybe that's why he just sort of leaves it up. But at least, if we did it on the minimum, we know that God's grace has appeared to everybody, at least on the island of Crete, because he and Titus have evangelized that island, and they have planted churches everywhere. Okay? So, 
That's important that we get that. Now, here's a question. The next question. Did this grace appear to all people who were lost or all people who were saved? Now remember, we're supposed to live a life so that the outsiders and the opponents will not blaspheme God, right? So we're going to have to define what this grace is that has appeared. Is the grace that appears to all people our behavior? Is that a means of God's grace? And when we live a righteous and a holy life, people see God's grace in us? Does God's grace mean that uh, that has appeared? Does it refer to Jesus when he came on earth, when he was born? That was He was a vehicle of God's grace? Does it mean when the gospel's preached, people hear of the grace of God? Is that is what everybody has heard? Is that the grace that's appeared to everybody? You have to ask those kinds of questions. Uh, is it just talking about people who are saved? Or is it talking about the people who are lost as well? So these are the kinds of questions you have to ask. So here's what it says. The grace of God, that's the subject, has appeared to all people. Okay, now, uh, it also says it's the grace of God that brings salvation. You see, that's how the grace is described. It's the grace of God that brings salvation. Uh, salvation simply means deliverance. And this is one of the problems that most evangelicals in the 21st century have. When we say salvation, we think heaven. We think just forgiveness of sin. But the word salvation itself means what? I just told you. Deliverance. Okay? It's deliverance. Yeah, it's deliverance from our sin. That's sure. It's uh, deliverance from sickness, ultimately, when Christ raises us from the dead. It's ultimate deliverance from this world that's corrupt, right? So, this grace that's appeared to everybody, whoever they are, brings deliverance. The grace brings deliverance. For by grace are you saved. For by grace are you delivered, Paul says in another book. Now, I know all around the world there were people who got up before dawn today. And they traveled to some park or public venue to wait for the sun to rise. And they sat down in their lawn chairs and their blankets. And they sat down there, and at about 6.45, the sun came over the horizon, and its rays shined upon everybody that was out there. It appeared to everybody that was out there, and everyone that was out there was delivered from darkness into light. See? That's what's happened when this grace has appeared. It's come over the horizon, and it delivers the people from their sins. It delivers them from darkness. It delivers them from the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God's dear Son. So that's a sense in which we've all heard the, uh, the verse out of uh, the book of Malachi, which says, the Son of Righteousness has arisen with healing in his wings. Did you ever hear that verse? It's very interesting, that word sun there is S-U-N. It's a metaphor for God. The Son has arisen. The Son of Righteousness has arisen. And it's a person with healing in his wings. And that's what happens when you are, when God arises over the horizon, when the grace of God appears, there's deliverance. Deliverance from all kinds of things. 
So how is this grace manifested? It's either manifested through Christ or through preaching or through our lives or all of those things. Now we get a clue because this is very interesting <clears throat> into what this grace really is. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now watch this. Look what grace does. In verse 12, it teaches us something. you see that? Teaching us. Do you see that? The grace that appears is teaching us. What is it teaching us to do? Look at the end of verse 12. That we should live what? Yeah, it teaches us how to live, doesn't it? This grace teaches us how to live. So what is this grace that's appeared? I really think that what he's talking about here is the gospel of Christ, what he calls sound teaching. That sound teaching, which is a theme throughout this entire book. And we've seen that, haven't we? We've seen that it's a theme in this entire book. Sound. You see it in verse 9. Do you see this? By sound doctrine. This is 1-9. Look at this. By sound doctrine. You see that? Look at verse 13. At the end of verse 13. Sound in the faith. Do you see that? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Sound doctrine. Do you see that? Look at the end of verse 2. Sound in the faith. You see that? Look at 2.8. Sound speech. You see? This is what he's, this is the grace that's appeared. It's this gospel of grace that's appeared that brings salvation. And it teaches us. Notice the us. Who's the us there? Look, it has appeared to all men. Look, it's appeared to all men, but it teaches who? Us something. It's appeared even to lost people, but guess what? It has a special message for us. And that special message for us is found in verse 12. We should live soberly, look at this, righteously and godly. That's how we should live. That's the message. Three adverbs. You see that? My Bible has L-Y on the end of each one of them. Someone said, each one of those words, soberly, righteously, and godly, relates to some person. We're to live soberly, which means in a state of self-control. If you go out and get drunk, guess what? You're no longer under control. You're no longer sober. This word soberly simply means self-control. That word relates to how we should live. It relates to us, our relationship to ourselves. We should live soberly. Look at this. And then it says, the next one is, righteously. That's how we relate to other people. The word means justly or fairly. You should treat other people fairly. Give them a fair deal. And then godly or piously or reverently or devoutly, this is in our relationship to God. We should be devout and pious and pleasing to God. So that's the message. Now, before we can live that way, because that's what the message teaches us, it teaches us to live that way. Before we can live that way, something else has to happen. It's right there in the middle of verse 12. Notice how I just skipped passage, a little part of that passage. I want you to see how you're to live. But look what has to come first in verse 12. Teaching us, now watch this, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, do you see that? We should live a certain way. Literally, having denied ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. 
having denied. This speaks of a decisive, conscious act. We call that act in the Bible repentance. Before you can live righteously and soberly and godly, you need to repent. You need to renounce something. It should happen in our baptism. It's when you say, I'm no longer going to live like the world. I denounce. I renounce. I renounce what? What does it say? Ungodliness. I don't live the way I used to live. Not caring whether there was a God or not. I renounce worldly lust. I renounce the passions of this world. The things that I used to desire. I renounce. Now, what is it that you desire? What, are the, what do you want in life? Is it something that fits into the mold of what the world wants? You know? Or does it fit into what you should do for the kingdom of God? You should renounce worldly lust and desires, whatever they are. What do you desire more than anything else? That's what you should renounce. What is it that if Jesus saw you doing it, you'd be ashamed of? That should be renounced. And it should have been renounced at your baptism. You give it up. You put it off, as he said in Colossians. You put it off that, and you put on the new man. That's what he's talking about here. Just different language. Does that make sense? So now, having done that, we are to live righteously, godly. When? Look right at the end of verse 12. In this present age. Right in the here and now. That's when we're supposed to live this way. We're to live in front of our lost neighbors, in front of our colleagues at work, in front of our schoolmates, in such a way that it will not cause them to blaspheme God, but to sit up and take notice. Now it's very interesting. So when you see this, in verse 11, you see what God has done. The grace of God has appeared. Okay, that's God's act. In verse 12, look what we should have done in the past. We should have denied ungodliness and worldly lust. Now notice what God's grace is doing now in verse 11. It brings salvation. Right now, it brings salvation. Look, what we should be doing in verse 12, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. So notice that grace has appeared, and guess what it does now? It brings salvation. Notice how the past is related to the present. Watch this. What should we have done in the past? Denied something. That's the past. Look at the results. Now we should live, you see. Notice how the past is related to the present. And then I want you to notice how the present is related to the future. Look what it says in verse 13. We're to live this way presently, looking, look, having as we look for, as we look for what? We're to live this way now as we look out into the future for something. As we wait for something. As we anticipate something. What is it? Here it is. The blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's talking about Resurrection Day. It's talking about the second coming of Christ. 
Now notice that's the second time that word appear is mentioned. You see it? Notice the first time it was mentioned is in verse 11. That's what happened in the past. Watch this. The grace of God appeared. You see that? That's in the past. But guess what? Something else is going to happen in the future. What is that? Jesus Christ is going to appear. So there was an appearance in the past, and there's an appearance that's going to happen in the future. And as we look for that future event, that should motivate us right now, in the here and now, to live a certain way. Now, here's the big question. The big question in verse 13 that all theologians ask, and they always get off on these kinds of little tangents, is this. When it says that we should be looking for the blessed hope, and notice it's a hope that blesses us. Hope always deals with the future. And it deals with the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And maybe a better translation would be in glory, when he comes in his glory. That's why it's a glorious appearing. But the question is, is this verse referred to two people or just one person? So let me read it, two people. The glorious appearing, number one, of our great God. That would be like God the Father. And the second person, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Messiah, Jesus Messiah. That's the two-person theory. And you can use the grammar and come up with, make a case that this is referring to two people. Or, does this refer only to one person? Jesus. In that, in that case, it would read something like this. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, and it's referring to who? Jesus Christ, so he would be our great God and Savior. So, which does it mean? You can make a case for either one based on the grammar. Grammar will never solve an issue. If you really want to know what it means, and this is my opinion now, okay? So you have to realize I'm a little strange when it comes to these things. You need to look at the context of this verse in history. In history. Okay? This language that you see right here, great God and Savior, glorious appearing, all those kinds of words were words that were very familiar to people living in the Roman Empire. Now, I downloaded this. This is an inscription from the first century that describes Caesar. Augustus Caesar. Remember him? That's the Caesar when Jesus was born. It applied to all of them, but this is just a description of him. This is an inscription that would have been put on the side of a building. This would have been an inscription that would have been read out in the public. And here's what it says. The most divine Caesar. Equal to the beginning of all things. Does that sound familiar to you? In the beginning? Right? You've heard it all. Equal to the beginning of all things. When everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Goes on to say, the Emperor Augustus was sent to us and to our descendants as Savior to put an end to war and set all things in order. And whereas, having become God manifest, epiphanies, a manifestation of God, 
and appearing of God. Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. And whereas finally, the birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the good news, the gospel. Concerning him, therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. Those words were written before Jesus was ever born. This is a language that the Romans were familiar with and they applied it to Caesar. Remember that Rome believed that the gods and the chief god was Jupiter or Zeus. He was known as the father god. That the gods had chosen Rome and given it the right to rule the world. They claimed they had a manifest destiny. Did you ever hear that word before? To spread peace throughout all the world. And all the blessings of the gods came down through Jupiter and came down on earth through his son, the divine Caesar. And every Caesar except one from Augustus all the way up to Domitian in 100 AD all claimed to be God in human flesh. And it was through Caesar that God's grace and his benevolence reached out and touched all the people. And whenever Caesar was to appear, whenever Caesar was to come to a, a territory that he controlled, the people had to prepare themselves. They had to get ready for his arrival. Everything had to be cleaned up. Everything had to be put in order. Now, here's the Christian gospel. And look what it says. We are to prepare ourselves. We are to live a certain way. Because our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Messiah, is going to come. And we need to be ready for his arrival. So, what you have happening here is that Paul is saying that Jesus is the great God and Savior. And what he's saying is that if Jesus is Lord, guess who's not Lord? Caesar's not Lord. And if our God is the Father, guess who's not the Father? Jupiter's not the Father. And guess what Paul is asking people to do? This grace, this message of grace that brings deliverance to all people. He's preaching this message, and he's calling those people to denounce their loyalty to Caesar and the Roman Empire and give their loyalty to another God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the real God, and commit themselves to his kingdom. And this is the way we're to live. And when people look at us compared to the way people look in the Roman Empire, they won't blaspheme our God. They will praise our God because they will see a difference. Because grace has entered our lives. And they'll want to know more about this Jesus. And they themselves want to be in, they will themselves want to enter the kingdom of God. Now that shows you how a verse is interpreted in light of history. Paul is offering an alternative to the Roman gospel. And look how Jesus is described in verse 14. Who gave himself for us. 
That's just the opposite of Caesar. Caesar doesn't give himself for anybody. You give yourself for Caesar. You die for Caesar. But in this case, Jesus dies for us. Notice he gave himself. Notice that's past tense, isn't it? When did he give himself? He gave himself on the cross. How did he give himself? He gave himself into the hands of the Romans. And when the Romans killed him, they said, we got rid of that troublemaker. We got rid of that challenger. And they thought that they had. But then he rose from the dead. And suddenly, they realized that Jesus had won, not them. See, that's the thing that you have to realize about these. When Jesus rose from the dead, Rome threw everything at Jesus they could. And they killed him. And once they killed him, they said, that's it. But three days later, what happened? Now, who won? Can Rome kill him again? No. So obviously, they've lost the battle. And one day, this Jesus who's been risen from the dead is going to come again, and every king and kingdom will be destroyed. And there will only be one kingdom that's standing, and it's the kingdom of God's dear Son. And we can enter into that in some way, even now. So he's described as he who gave himself for us. What was the purpose for him giving himself over to death? Here it is. This is what the pastor talked about. That he might redeem us. That means that he might rescue us. That's what salvation is. It's a deliverance. That he might rescue us. That he might free us. That he might release us. Release us from what? What does it say in verse 14? Every lawless deed. Look, when he died, he freed us from this life of debauchery. He freed us from being under the power of Satan and under the power of Satan's earthly tools, which in this case were the oppressive Roman government who hated Christians. That's a negative. We've been freed from something. Just as God freed Israel in the Exodus. God redeemed Israel in the Exodus. Remember that? A lamb had to die, though, didn't it? In order for Israel to be redeemed. Okay. Now we have the Lamb of God who dies for the sins of the world. And just as Israel was redeemed released, rescued, freed from one tyrant, Pharaoh, so these believers are freed, released from another tyrant, Caesar. They do not have to obey Caesar any longer. All they have to do is what God tells them to do. See? They've been freed. And look at that. Freed from something. Notice it's from something. And, now look at the positive, why he redeemed us. And to purify for himself his own special people. Just as Israel was God's special people, in the Old Testament he has produced a New Testament special people that are called the church. Special people means a special treasure. We have been, re we have been freed, we've been purified, we're no longer dirty. Now watch this. What kind of people... Has he turned into special kind of people? Look at how we're described right at the end of verse 14. To purify a people, to purify for himself a people, his own special people. Now look at this. Zealous for what? Good works. You see that? He redeemed us to be zealous 
for good works. What's your purpose for existing here on earth right now as a believer? To be zealous for good works. It's hard to believe, but that's the theme of this whole book is good works. I showed you that the first day of class. To be zealous for good works. What were the opponents zealous for in the book of Titus? They were zealous for the law, weren't they? But guess what we're to be zealous for? Good works. What are you zealous for? What is it in your life that you have zeal for? I have students who are zealous for the cowboys. I mean, they would rather watch the cowboys on Sunday than go to the church, right? So what are they zealous for? They're zealous for the cowboys. Other people are zealous for finances. Other people are zealous for to play video games. Other people are zealous for food. It's obvious. Other people are zealous to travel. We haven't been redeemed for that. We've been redeemed to be zealous for good works. This is what O.S. Hawkins preached about a few weeks ago, remember? For by grace you are saved through faith. We are God's workmanship. We're God's creation. Created, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Look. Created, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is what we're here for. We're going to live a godly life and we are to perform good works. And we're to do it now. And what should motivate us is the coming of our Lord who will one day appear. And what is it that he, when he, judgment comes, he says, when I was hungry... You didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was naked and you didn't... They said, when did we see you? Why? You didn't do it in any of these people. And, the, and he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. See, that's the way a lost person lives. And then he says, I was this and this and this. And you did it. And they said, when did we see this? Well, in that sense that you did it to the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Come ye and inherit the kingdom of God. See, we good works is a very important doctrine and an important part of the Christian's life. And boy, let me tell you, we're so afraid of good works. Because somehow we say, oh, that means I'm working for my... This has nothing to do with working for your salvation. This is what it means to be redeemed. We say, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. We should say, redeemed how I love to show it. There are good works. No one can blaspheme God because of you if you're doing good works. It's when you don't do anything that they proclaim hypocrisy. See, this is Paul's argument. You have to see what he's thinking here. This is very interesting. So now he gives this last command to Titus. And look what he says. Speak these things. <laughs> Everything I've said there in chapter 2 and all those things I said in chapter 1, which talks about all these kinds of way to live and get people on ball and, you know. Speak these things. Now look at this. Exhort and rebuke. Do you notice the progression of intensity in those words? See, there's a progression there. Do you say it? Look. Teach. That means talk. Explain. Hey, okay, that's sort of low key. Now look at this next word. Exhort, challenge, encourage. Yeah, there's more intensity there. And look at this last word. Rebuke. <laughs> See? Explain, 
encourage. But if they don't get on the ball, guess what you do? You rebuke. People don't like that part. And who was Timothy to rebuke back in chapter 1? The opposition. Those of the circumcision. Remember that? Who thought the law was that important. Rebuke. And how is he to rebuke? Look what it says. With all authority. He's to teach with authority. He's to exhort with authority. And he's to rebuke with authority. And I imagine that Titus is having a hard time in this church getting them on the ball. And Paul says, you need to do it with authority. And he has authority because Paul has given him the authority and Paul's the apostle. So he's operating under delegated authority and he says, use that authority. And when you stand up, say, I represent God and I represent the apostle Paul. And do it with authority. And do it not only with your lips, but do it with your life as an example. You can't be a hypocrite and tell people, ask people to do something that you won't do. And then his final statement, verse 15, is very interesting. Let no one despise you. And obviously they are despising Paul, or Titus. The, the opposition is despising Titus. Why do you think they're despising this guy? You ever hear Paul say to somebody else, don't let anybody despise you? Who did he say that to? He said to Timothy. Why did he tell Timothy that? He said, don't let anybody despise your what? Your youth. And here's this young guy that he's left here to get this church in order and to appoint elders. And they're saying, who in the world does this guy think he is? This, you know, Johnny-come-lately type character. You know, he's just a kid. He's not even wet behind the ears. And so Paul says, hey, Titus, get some backbone. Stand up to these people. Don't allow them to continue on like this. So uh, he has to stand up and he has to say, thus says the Lord, and don't allow people to despise him. Now, this is a great word for all young preachers right here. Because they go into churches, and guess what? They're ministering to older people. And there's some conflict. And this is a very important word right here for young preachers especially. Now, I'm going to remind you something once again. This is being read out loud. That letter is being read out loud to the church. Isn't that right? They've had a Lord's Supper. They've eaten a meal. They're into the symposium. The letter arrives, and it's read out loud, and it says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Titus, Put things in order. And everybody in the church is hearing that. Rebuke those who oppose you. Hey, guess what? The rebukers are right there in the audience. See? Encourage those. You know, be, see, they're hearing this. After, they, after this letter is read out loud, I don't think that uh, Titus is really going to have too much problem with these troublemakers. Because now all the peer pressure, because everyone's heard the letter at the same time, and they're all sitting in the same room, and they all know who's who. And the peer pressure has been put on them, and I think as a result of this, Titus is able to carry out his mission of getting this church in order. Boy. Blah. <laughs>
Is that how you read Titus? Is that how you've read Titus in the past 30, 40 years? No. We, because you know why? We read it devotionally. We don't try to put ourselves back into the mindset of Paul in the first century, trying to understand everything. And when you do that, guess what? The meaning really does pop out of the, off the page. This is the logic of Paul's argument and instructions to Titus. Next week, we pick up in chapter 3 and verse 1. He said, by the way, I want you to remind them to do something else. So this poor Titus is, uh, <laughs> I think if Titus would have looked back on his life, he said, I don't think I should have ever hooked up with this guy, Paul. Because he sure is laying it on him. But he'll have to carry out these instructions. So that's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Help us to reflect on our own lives. Help us to see where our own shortcomings are. Help us to realize that this letter has survived 2,000 years and now it's being read today in this church, in this room. And the instructions are for us. Help us to realize, Lord, that we need to live a certain way that outsiders are not given the opportunity to blaspheme and reject the gospel because of our hypocrisy. Help us to realize we need to be doing these spontaneous acts of kindness because we serve you and we are your hands extended. It's through us now that the benefits of the kingdom are extended to others. It's through our voice they hear the gospel. It's through our hands that we lay on people for salvation and healing and anointing and the Holy Spirit. It's through us, Lord, that you work. We are your body extended. So, Lord, help us to, to take these lessons to heart. And Lord, if we are part of this opposition, if we are those who are zealous for wrong things, help us to take this letter as a personal rebuke from the Spirit. And Lord, help us to get on the right path. Help us to keep our baptismal vows. May repentance be as live today in us as it was then. May the things we renounced at our baptism, the old life, not be allowed to be resurrected in our life, in our new life. Help us to be conformed into the image of the risen Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.